Every single life and every single nation has tumultuous times. And we go through that personally. We go through it in times of sickness and facing death even, perhaps. Sometimes we are in the midst of job difficulties, troubles going on at work, or maybe stress in our relationships, in our marriages, whatever it is, maybe just personal struggles that we're facing, the time of real personal turmoil or or national turmoil. There are times when nations come and go through times of uh, financial upheavals and economic crises and wars, rumors of wars. And we go through spiritual times of turmoil when our spiritual lives are turned upside down and, and everything is all wrong and we just face great pressure and great temptation and and great anxiety in our hearts and minds. It is true that every, every person, every nation, has those times. And many in those times question God. They wonder if God is, is there, if He's real, if He's forgotten, if He's abandoned them. Maybe they look outside of God. They look somewhere else for an alternative hope, something, anything, to give them hope in the midst of this great, difficulty that they're facing and you know sometimes even God's people even believers are are tempted to look elsewhere but our Lord for hope in the midst of turmoil and when that happens I want to remind you that we're not the first ones to deal with that kind of temptation in Isaiah's day Judah was tempted to rely on something other than the Lord. Any, anywhere that they could look for, for help in the midst of their national turmoil. And they did. They were tempted to turn to the great powers of the day. Um, in Isaiah's day, it was the great powers of Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest. Those were the two great powers of his day. And then, of course, there were the smaller regional powers that were always vying for survivability in the midst of the clash between the major powers. Countries such as uh, Syria and, and the northern kingdom of Israel to the north and Edom and Moab to their east and Phoenicia and Philistia to the west God put his people, the people of Israel, you know, just kind of right there, plopped down in the middle of all of this, pressed on every side by all of these powers. And you might know that, you know, this really was a, an amazing piece of geography for God to put those ancient people the, the Arabian Desert was on the east, and the, sea of, uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea was on their west. And so, really, that little country formed a kind of a land bridge between the great ancient Near Eastern powers and the great civilizations of North Africa, not to mention the European peoples who would emerge more powerful as the centuries went on. They were really right there, smack dab in the middle of all of that. And they weren't a big country. I mean, you could, you're talking about the land that God gave those people could fit 24 times in the state of Texas. Not a big place. Not a mighty people. Half of their land was desert. Right? It's no wonder that they had famines, you know, more frequently than, than we can imagine here. We're talking about, the, of course, in the days before modern irrigation. Here is this little desert piece of real estate smack dab in the middle of all of these world powers, this tiny little place. It's almost as if, as if God has put them in this place intentionally in order to demonstrate their reliance upon himself and himself alone. 
And that really is what his intent was with the nation of Israel, is to demonstrate that he and he alone could be, would be the refuge and the strength of his people. Their strength wasn't in their great might, their military power, their vast numbers. God put them right in the place of great pressure, great turmoil even at times among the powers that, that were surrounding them in order to, to bring them to this place of dependence on him. And, and friends, that's exactly what he does with all of us, isn't it? From time to time, he puts us, as it were, right in the middle, in our weakness. He puts us right in the middle of all of this turmoil going on all around us. Why? So that we might see and know, and everyone might see and know, that our hope is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. That he is the only strength, the only refuge of his people. That if the Lord doesn't sustain us, that there there is no hope for us. That anything good that comes from us is all of him. In order to get us to recognize our utter dependence on him, the Lord does that for us. And while it is hard and painful and scary, it's exactly where we need to be. It's just like it was exactly where Israel needed to be in the midst of all of those peoples. God put Israel, Judah, in the middle of a mess so that the nations would see a testimony, so that the nations could see the testimony of a people reliant on the Lord God alone. And so that the nations all around them could be a testimony to them, a witness to them of the greatness of their God. The nations around them would be an example to them. And that's really what this passage is. We're in the middle, or in the beginning, really, of a 10-chapter section that runs from chapters, chapter 13 to chapter 23, and it's a series of 10 oracles. That word comes up 10 times. God gave Isaiah an oracle, and the oracles were for a series of nations, all of these nations that surrounded Judah and for the people of Judah herself. God gave these oracles about all of these nations, not primarily, these oracles were not primarily given to those nations, they're given to the people of Judah, right? I mean, there may have been on occasion some of the, some of the, envoys and peoples of those nations that came and heard the message. But the message was primarily for, it was about those nations, but it was for the benefit of God's people to teach them something about God, to reveal something about himself, and to inspire and encourage them to faith and trust in their Lord in the midst of where they found themselves. And the first oracle that God gave through Isaiah with regard to those surrounding nations was in chapters 13 and 14, the beginning of chapter 14, and it had to do with the nation of Babylon. We looked at this last week. Babylon was the kind of quintessential city of man, the city of human pride, the the epitome of what humans believed that they could do apart from God. It was representative of all ungodly powers. It was the greatest of all of the ancient Near Eastern empires. This great empire of Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's vision was the head of gold, the head of all of these ancient empires. And yet God in and through Isaiah declared her end, the end of Babylon, he declared from the beginning. And he had actually already begun to pronounce her fall many, many years before it happened. God began to sing a song through Isaiah, a taunt for a fallen king and for the evil serpent and dragon that was behind him. Even though, of course, Israel had to wait a long time 
for the actual experience of the judgment of God upon their enemies. And really, that's where we all are. We're in the, in the middle between the point where God has announced His victory over all evil, where it's done, it's secure, because Christ is enthroned in the heavens, between that point and the point at which we all are actually experiencing the, the destruction of all evil. We're here in that same point, waiting. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 14 that is, or <clears throat> later on into this chapter, we really ran out of time for this last week, and I, I just sort of didn't get to it, but there is a kind of addendum to the oracle concerning Babylon that runs from verses 24 to 27. And I want to give attention to that here at the beginning of this sermon because it really sets up our perspective for the second oracle, which we'll look at here in a moment. So would you take a look again at verse number 24, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it, what? So shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Boy, those are great verses. You ought to just maybe think about memorizing those verses. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Verse 25, then I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains, trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose of... Look at, listen to this now. This is great. Verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed by God concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all nations. For the Lord of hosts has, has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? What a great section. And this is kind of a repeated refrain that's going to come up a three different times in this 10-chapter section. Now, of course, this little passage, this little section that we just read, comes in the midst of this oracle concerning Babylon, right? That's what we saw at the beginning of chapter 13. This is an oracle, um, chapter 20, chapter 13, yeah. This is an oracle concerning Babylon. And it might seem strange that now he's talking about the breaking of Assyria, in the midst of this oracle about Babylon. But, of course, Babylon and Assyria were closely related, historically and ethnically, and geographically and culturally, even religiously in, in some ways. They were, they were closely related peoples. They were kind of cousins, if you will, or sister states. The nation of Assyria, or the empire that became Assyria, was originally called Akkadia. And the southern part of Acadia was a place called Sumeria, S-U-M, Sumeria. Um, and from th there was, that's where the city of Ur was, right? From which Abraham and his family originated. So that part of that land later became called Chaldea or Babylon. So there's kind of really an organic connection, the the Babylonians come out, as it were, from the old Assyria. And so it's natural, I think, in this oracle to move from one to the other in reference to Assyria and Babylon and now Assyria. And the breaking of Assyria, which he prophesies here, the breaking of Assyria that's going to take place in the midst of the land of Judah then sets the historical background partly really for the next oracle that's going to come. But the big point of this whole uh, section, verses 24 to 27, is this, that God's purposes will what? They will stand. God's purposes will stand. As I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposes, purposed, so it shall stand. I mean, who else can say that, right? Who else can speak with that kind of authority, with that kind of absolute certainty that whatever he purposes, it will happen? I mean, think about that. Really, literally, who else do you know whose plans 
can be relied on like that. Just imagine some possibilities of, of people who've, who've issued their plans and, and put forth their purposes, which have ended up coming to nothing. The greatest of plans sometimes end up failing. Who else will you go to? Here is the one and the only one, the God of heaven, who is able to say, what I purpose will be done. What I plan will certainly come to pass. No one stands in God's way and says, whoa, this far and no farther. No one subverts his plan. He is sovereign over all. This series of this whole series of oracles is kind of like a hall of testimonies to that fact. Right? Just picture yourself walking down this long marble hallway, and along the hallway are these statues of leaders of long forgotten empires. And as you're walking down this hallway, you just hear the word of God that came out of heaven about this one and that one and this one and that one, right? Assyria, gone, check. Babylon, God said he would destroy it, check. There it is. There's the ruins of it, right? On and on it goes. The Lord is just demonstrating his sovereignty by working out his purposes with all of these nations. This is a a track record like no other in the fulfillment of his wishes. And all of that is to do this, friends. It's not just to say, well, that's nice. God does whatever he wants. It's supposed to make us say, oh, God, I trust you. I'm, I'm putting my whole life into your hands. I'm, I'm betting everything, as it were, on you. I'm relying upon you because you alone are able to accomplish all your purposes. Not one of your good promises will fail. You will not abandon your children. You will do everything that you have promised to them. And it may not be that we, that we really understand the immediate purposes of God. I know as well as you that there are plenty of times when we're scratching our heads saying, God, what are you What is your purpose in this situation? I don't understand. But we know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the bigger, grander purposes of God to which all of these other purposes fit in. And that is God's intent is what? To glorify himself in his son for the good of his people. I think that's the best way to say it. God's purpose is that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. Is another way to say it, isn't it? And that purpose, friends, will not fail. We are on the right side of history. You know, in the short term, it doesn't look like it sometimes, depending on where you live and when you live. Sometimes God's people have been on the ascendancy, and sometimes they haven't. Those things will go up and they will go down. And I don't know all of what the future holds, but I know this, that in the end, God's purpose is to glorify himself in his son for the good of his people. And that we can rest our whole being on. And we are, right? We are. We're, 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 literally, we're literally laying down our lives on the belief that that's true. And that's good. And the whole encouragement in the sermon today is that you would continue doing that, and especially when things are in a turmoil around you. God's purposes will come to pass, and his purposes encompass the entire globe, everything that happens among all of the peoples, right? Verse 26, this is the purpose, verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the what? The whole earth. God's not just dealing with one nation here or one nation there. He's working out his purposes in the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all nations. God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. How ought that to make us feel? Well, on the one hand, it ought to inspire fear and terror in some people. Psalm 76, verse 7, "You, You are to be feared. 
for you stand for who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused if god is sovereign and he's going to sovereignly work out his justice and his anger then friend who can possibly stand before him nebuchadnezzar the mightiest king of all of babylon was humbled by the almighty god and said in daniel chapter 4 and verse 35 all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing there, God has done according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign over all of the mightiest empires and the greatest of leaders and rulers. On the one hand, it ought to make people tremble, but on the other hand, listen, friends, for those who take refuge in him, oh, it ought to be the greatest comfort for our hearts that God is sovereign. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 16 puts it this way. God says, listen to his sovereignty now declared. Behold, I have created the smith that blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. If there's weapons being produced for war, guess who's behind it ultimately? God. If there's a ravager coming to destroy, guess who's behind it ultimately? God. God is behind all the ups and downs and all the turmoil in the world. Even behind that, God is sovereignly working out his purpose. And the very next thing he says to his own people is this, no weapon that is fashioned against you, my people, shall what? None of it will succeed. Why? Because God's behind it. No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, the sovereign Lord. What a comfort, what an encouragement to us as God's people struggling in the midst of national and personal turmoils all around us. That there is a God who is on his throne. His purposes may be hidden from us in the short term, but they are being worked out certainly for his glory and for our good. And this is why Israel was supposed to trust in the Lord, not in Assyria, not in Egypt, not in Babylon. And this is why you and I can trust him in our tumultuous times. And one of the tumultuous times for Israel was their fraught relationship with the people called the Philistines. Philistia. And Philistia is the subject of the second oracle in this book. Now, the Philistines, you probably are aware, are, were an ancient people. They were mentioned in the Table of Nations, the book of Genesis, their descent, their, their forefathers. This is a people, um, I've got a map here, I think, a people that were settled on the coastal plain to the south east, excuse me, to the southwest of the nation of Israel and particularly to the west of Judah there. You see them settled along that coastal plain. Uh, to the south of them, to the south of Egypt, I mean to the south of Philistia is Egypt, and uh, to their, to the, in the other direction, just straight south of Judah is just a desert called the Negev. There were five city-states that made up the sort of peoples of the Philistines. They were the cities of Gaza, Escalon, Ashkelon, excuse me, Ashdod, all those were on the coast, and then further inland was the city of Lachish and Ekron, which is not on the map, as if you could see it anyway, but, but it, is, uh, it is there um, near the city of Gezer. The Philistines were an evil, unbelieving, idolatrous people who were persecutors of God's people from very early on. Uh, in the book of Judges and in the early monarchy time of Israel, they were a perennial thorn in the side of the people of, of Israel. And um, you probably remember the, I know you know, the most well-known of all of the uh, Philistines, a man who was Pretty good size, nine feet, over nine feet tall, a guy by the name of Goliath. He was from one of those Philistine cities, the city of Gath. And uh, during David's time, 
course, there was a great turning point, and God gave the Philistines into the hands of the people of Israel. David conquered them, and they were subdued and became vassals of the Israelites. But as time went on, the Philistines regained their power, and their influence and hold over the southern part of Israel really reached its height during the time of the Judean king Ahaz. So it's not significant then when we open this oracle in verse number 28. Everybody took a look at verse 28. When the oracle against Philistia opens this way, in the year that King Ahaz, what? Died, came this oracle. This is the second of only three passages in the book of Isaiah where you have specific dates mentioned. So it's, a, it's an important um, point of, for Isaiah to make, and I think it's because it was a really critical time. It was a critical point of transition. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Ahaz has died, and now his young son Hezekiah is coming to the throne. He's a 25-year-old young man. And the question is, well, here's, here's what your father's position was. Here's what his policies are. What will yours be? And really to help us more fully appreciate the background then uh, or the significance of this oracle, I want to go into the historical background of it for a moment. So I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage, and then we'll come back to Isaiah in the end. And this other one is, is 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Would you find that in the, in the scriptures there? <clears throat> if you use in a house Bible, it's page 379. 2 Chronicles in chapter 28. We're going to find out a little bit more about Ahaz. King Ahaz, because it was upon his death that this oracle was given. So 2 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse number 1. Now Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, a fairly very young man, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did what? He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father or his forefather David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. They were all of their kings were ungodly. Ahaz is walking in their footsteps. He goes on to say he even made metal images for the Baals. These are the local Canaanite gods. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And look at this. He even burned his sons as an offering according to the abomination of the nations whom God drove out before the people of Israel. Can you imagine such a uh, thing, to do such a thing for, for something who, which is no God at all? A waste of a life, the pouring out of his own son's life in this idolatry. In verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on all and on the hills and under every green tree. So he's he's a just an ungodly ruler who has turned and turning the nation toward idolatry, in some cases really gross idolatry. And so beginning in verse five, you have the consequences of his ungodly reign. Therefore, it says, the Lord his God gave him into the hand. See, the Lord's in control of all of us, isn't he? He's sovereign over it. The movements of nations, he's using it as a judgment upon Ahaz. He gave him over into the hand of the king of Syria, that was Rezin, king of Assyria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, which was Pekah at the time. It goes on to say, he struck him with great force. For Pekah, the 
the king of Israel, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all the men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And what's being described here, of course, is the same crisis that we read about earlier in the book of Isaiah. Remember back in chapter 7, there was this alliance between Syria and Israel, between Rezin and Pekah, and they were determined to get the king of Judah, Ahaz, on their side against the nation, the empire of Assyria. They said, join with us, and he refused to join. He was going to give his allegiance to Assyria. And so they made a plan to depose him, to decapitate the leadership of Judah, and to install their own puppet king. And of course, God came to him through Isaiah and said, listen, their plan is going to come to nothing. God's going to stop it. Trust God and ask God for a sign. And Ahaz, of course, in mock piousness said, oh, I can't ask God for a sign. But the Lord said, you know, Isaiah said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And he gave him the sign, of course, he gave to the, the people of Judah the sign of the virgin birth. The, the greater king who would sit, the greater son of David who would sit on the throne one day. So this is, this is where it's going here. And God had brought this judgment upon Ahaz because of his wickedness and his idolatry but God's judgment didn't just come from the north, from Syria and, and, and Israel. It came from the, uh, the east as well. Look down in verse 17. Drop down to verse 17. It says that the Edomites, that's on the other side of the Dead Sea. They came over from the east and again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And then from the west as well, verse 18. And the, what? And the Philistines, all right? This is what the oracle in Isaiah is about. And the Philistines from the west, they had made raids on the city in, cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Gedaroth, Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. So they, the, the Philistines took over these key cities and established permanent residency and bases in those places, displacing the people of Judah. Now, I'm going to show you another map because this is kind of a strategic location, really, that's being discussed here. And I don't know any other way than to kind of show you the sort of lay of the land. So this is a, this is a kind of a topographical map. And I know it's not easy to see. But uh, I've put a star there approximately where, uh, where Jerusalem would be and uh, where, where Bethlehem and the sort of the major population center of Judah uh, there. The, the Philistines are there along, if you can barely see it, what's labeled as the coastal plains. That was the place, the place that the Philistines had originally settled. Um, the yellow area sort of in between the orange and the light color on the coast, there's a yellow sort of strip that kind of runs down the middle. I don't know if you can see it at all or not. But where Jerusalem is and where the main population of, is, of Judah is, is up in the mountains. Along the coast, you have the, lowland, you have the, the coastal plains there. And in the middle, you have this kind of low-lying area, this area that's called the Shephelah. We, we just read that that's where... Uh, the people of uh, the Philistines had made inroads. The Shephelahs, kind of the lowlands. And there were certain key aspects of the Shephelah, and you can barely see it on here, but if you want to go look at a map later, you can. There are these valleys that run through these sort of lowland hills that sort of kind of form fingers that reach up into the highlands where most of the population lives. There are about five or six valleys that run pretty much east and west through the Shephelah, and those valleys are really strategic in, for the people of Judah for two reasons. Number one, because they form 
key transportation hubs. Even today, there are roads that go up through those hills, and some of the roads going up straight up over the, the, the lowland hills are pretty rough. They're switchbacks, they're hard. And can you imagine in a, in a day without paved roads and everything? And transportation, if you wanted to get from the main population center out to the Mediterranean, you would go down through those valleys, by and large. So it was a, a transportation corridor. And secondly, it was a major agricultural food production area. The hills, the lowland hills of the Shephala, were covered with, in a kind of a, of a chalky um, uh, top. And the bottoms of those valleys, that's where a lot of your fertile land was. That's where a lot of the uh, food for Judah was grown, especially in this time when the the main breadbasket of Israel, the Valley of Jezreel, was actually part of the northern kingdom. So this was really the breadbasket of the south, by and large. In fact, the next picture is a picture of modern agriculture still being done in those valleys in the Shephelah. Now, the Philistines, the Bible says, came and took from Ahaz those cities that sat at the entrances of those valleys. In other words, now the Philistines had come to control these really strategic points. They controlled now the main trade routes and the food production centers for Judah, which of course must, I mean, if you're the king of Judah and you're responsible for taking care of this nation, making sure that they're fed and they can trade and they can survive. I mean, this is a great deal of pressure upon you. There's a great deal of turmoil that comes about because of, really, of God's judgment in unleashing the Philistines upon his people. And the truth is that God sometimes puts you and I in those kinds of situations too, where, where trouble is just magnified, where turmoil is heightened, and sometimes, honestly, it is because of our own sin. We bring it upon ourselves, right? Just as it happened with Ahaz. And the question now is, okay, what do you do? Where do you go? How do you respond? in the midst of this turmoil in which you find yourself, whether you're of your own doing or of, for reasons that you don't understand, how do you respond? How do you move forward? Where do you go when all around you is in turmoil? And Isaiah's message to Ahaz was simple. Ahaz, trust the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Put your hope in Him. He will take care of his people. But Ahaz hardened his heart against that message. He disbelieved the covenant promises of God to Abraham, and he ended up turning in a very different direction. And you see it enacted in his foreign policy, a policy that was driven not by faith, but by fear and by human ingenuity, where would he turn? If he wasn't going to turn to the God of heaven, if he wasn't going to submit to the God of heaven and God's plans and just trust himself, trust himself to this God that he should have known was sovereign over all the nations, where would he turn? And of course, the answer is right here in this text as well. Look up at verse 16. At that time... The king Ahaz sent to the king of what? Assyria. He sends to the king of Assyria for help. And like all of our acts of faithlessness, it was a shameless thing. It's really sad to read this. And I, there's a passage in Kings as well that talks about this. And, and it, is, it is sad to watch. I mean, Ahaz goes to the king of Assyria and he not only gives him tribute, a kind of payoff to the king of Assyria to take care of his problem up in the north with this coalition that's arrayed against him, but 
he also really just kind of humiliates himself before the king. He fawns over his new overlord. He plunders the temple of God in order to rip, it, rip apart the materials there and make a kind of a copy of this Assyrian temple that was up in Damascus. And he makes a copy of that as if that's going to bring the favor of his uh, Assyrian uh, Lord. And Second Kings chapter 16 says he actually went down and he changed the whole architecture of the temple, quote, because of the king of Assyria. I mean, this is just like really pitiful and shameless groveling to try to save his skin because he wasn't willing to trust in the Lord. And there's really an ugliness and a shamelessness to this thing. And the worst part of it all is that he ends up, Ahaz ended up being publicly humiliated by the very one in whom he put his trust, by the king of Assyria himself, the one he paid tribute to and fawned over. Look down in verse 19 now. Verse 19. For the Lord humbled Judah... Because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, the very one he hired to come take, you know, to be his helper, he came against him and afflicted him instead of what? Instead of strengthening him. I mean, that's the way sin goes, right? It promises one thing and it ends up delivering exactly the opposite. And this king came down and ended up being a thorn in his side. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. And from that day, Judah came under the vassalage of the Assyrians. And Ahaz served at the pleasure of the king of Assyria of this ungodly, wicked empire. And I tell you that sin and unbelief, they end up having a mastery over a person. Sin mocks the meat it feeds upon, just as did the king of Assyria. And so this was Judah's historical position in the day that, in the year that King Ahaz died. This is where they were. Now let's go back with that understanding then to our text in Isaiah chapter 14. Back to Isaiah 14. King Ahaz has died. His son Hezekiah ascends to the throne. And Hezekiah is a godly young man. He does not walk in the ways of his father. But what will be his policy toward Assyria? Where will he put his trust? And in that setting, the oracle comes with regard to Philistia. Now, first I want to point out to you the very end of this section, verse 32, because it's there that we see the immediate situation that really sparked, it seems, this whole prophecy. Why did God give this word about Philistia to Isaiah, in this very moment when Ahaz has died and Hezekiah is ascending the throne. Verse 32, take a look. What will one answer the messengers, you see that word? The messengers of the nation. And the nation that's being talked about here is Philistia. So apparently, when Ahaz died, and this would have been a very common thing, When Ahaz died, Philistia, the Philistines, sent messengers, envoys, a delegation over to Jerusalem to the new king, Hezekiah. Because, of course, the Philistines were also under the thumb of Assyria. But unlike Judah, they didn't try to curry favor with the Assyrians and get the Assyrians on their side. Instead, they relied upon other nations around them coalitions with other nations, and especially the Philistines were reliant on their nearest neighbor, who was also a world superpower to the south, which was what? Anybody know? Which was Egypt, yeah. So the Philistines were always 
sort of allied with Egypt as an alliance of, uh, of necessity in standing against the Assyrians coming down from the north. And, of course, for these smaller uh, powers, survival depended on alliances. Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, took a pro-Assyrian pro policy, but now he's dead, so what of the son? And I'm sure this delegation comes to just find out that question. And perhaps I can't imagine that they came to him without offering anything. Surely they would have said, hey, we might be willing to give up some of our possessions in the Shephelah if you'll, you know, come join our coalition against Assyria. And that, of course, must have been to any king of Judah tasked with taking care of that people, very appealing. It made a lot of sense on a kind of human level. But what should be Hezekiah's position? Should he continue to depend on Assyria? Or should he cast his lot in with Egypt and her allies? Where should his hope be? So here then, in that context, was the word of the Lord regarding Philistia. This is the message that was given to Judah and to Hezekiah. Verse 29, now let's just read through it. Rejoice not, O Philistia. Remember, Hezekiah's reading this, but it's it's a word to Philistia. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, all of these great city-states, that the rod that struck you is broken. Now, it's not totally clear what Isaiah is referring to what the Lord's referring to when he says the rod that struck you is broken and they're rejoicing that that's the case. Ahaz, of course, who just died, didn't exactly strike the Philistines. In fact, they struck him. So it doesn't seem to most commentators that it's a reference to Ahaz, though it might seem like that from the verse that just came before. So some commentators think that the rod that struck the... uh, Philistines was, uh, was Hezekiah himself, or maybe Ahaz who came before, I'm sorry, uh, Uzziah who came before, or maybe David who came long before that. But, you know, here's the way I think about it. Ahaz's rod to strike the, uh, the Philistines wasn't his own. It was actually Assyria. Assyria is the one who really came down and put the squeeze on the Philistines. And of course, Assyria wasn't really Ahaz's rod at all. It was whose rod? Isn't that exactly the language that we saw back in chapter 10? Assyria, my rod, God says, to strike not only the Philistines, but also Judah for her sins. So it seems like the Philistines are coming to Hezekiah now, probably in the hope that the death of Ahaz would mean that Judah will switch sides and Assyria's hold over that region will be broken finally. Their rod will be broken. But Isaiah says, Philistia, don't rejoice. Verse 29, take a look at verse 29. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. So it's almost like you have the rod becoming a snake, you know, sort of reminiscent of Moses. Remember when he cast down his rod and it became a snake. And now from the root of the serpent will come this highly venomous snake and from it even a flying fiery serpent, as it is said. In other words, the Lord is saying to Philistia, don't rejoice that that maybe the rod over you will be broken. It's going to get worse for you. In verse 30, he goes on to present a really stark contrast. He says, And the firstborn of the poor will what? Will eat. They will graze. They will, they will be fed. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety, but, now here's the contrast, but I will kill your root with famine and your remnant it will slay. 
The poor and the needy here in the first part of the verse, I think, can only refer to God's people who were his firstborn, as it were, brought out of Egypt, my firstborn son. And I think it's clear when you get to the end of verse 32, just jump down to there to the end, and, and he says, for the afflicted of God's people find hope. So here in the beginning of verse 30, the afflicted, the needy, the poor, this is God's people who are going to live in hope. God will take care of them. God will preserve them. But in contrast to that, he says, now while Judah is being fed, the Philistines will suffer what? What does it say, the second half of the verse? But I will kill your root with, which is ironic justice, isn't it? on those people who were now occupying these lush, fertile valleys growing with food. God says, I will turn around and I will bring judgment upon you. And what was left from the famine, the remnant, the end of verse 30, the remnant. So there's a remnant in Israel, right? But there's a kind of an unholy remnant now in Philistia. And that remnant, he says, will be slain in battle while my people dwell in safety. And so, verse 31, so he tells to Philistia, so wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for the smoke comes out of the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. God would bring judgment upon the people of Philistia coming out of the north, the cities burning in their wake, the smoke of those cities rising up. And when the Philistines looked and they saw this in the north, they should know, Israel should know, as they saw this coming down upon the Philistines, that this is the word of God coming to pass, just as God said. And indeed, God did raise up other Assyrian armies and the Babylonians after them who would come down and utterly destroy the Philistines from the face of the earth. King Sargon II from Assyria, the son, actually, of Tiglath-Pileser that Ahaz had hired, he came down and conquered Gath, one of the main cities of the Philistines, just four years after this prophecy was given. He burned that city, conquered that city, and after that it never appears again in historical records. Later, Sennacherib, his son, came with another Assyrian army and burned other Philistine cities and impaled its rulers. And finally, in 604 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who we know so much about in the scripture, came against Philistia and burned Ashkelon and incorporated, really, Philistia into the Babylonian Empire, and it ceased to be an identifiable people from then on in, the, in world history. I mean, it's just gone. It's a... It's a disappeared civilization. Why? Because God said it would. The God who works all things according to his purposes proclaimed the end from the beginning. Now, what about God's people? What about Judah? Well, the prophecy ends this way. Verse 32. The Lord has founded Zion. The city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion, that's the Lord's city. He's founded it. And in her, the afflicted of his people shall find what? Refuge. And they did. We'll see it in when we get to chapter 37. And the Assyrians come and they march slowly across from north to south, down into the Levant, down into the, this whole Middle Eastern area. And, and they come and they work their way over to Jerusalem and they set up siege around that city. And the Lord, the Bible says, sends his angel in the middle of the night to kill 185,000 Assyrians. And the Lord delivers his people. And even after his judgment upon them in Babylonian exile, he brings back a remnant into that land and he makes to them incredible promises of an everlasting kingdom. And he always preserves his people. And Hezekiah, no doubt, had this prophecy in his mind. You want to know how Hezekiah responded? You want to know the end of the story? The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say? Well, here it is. Hezekiah, apparently, after hearing this prophecy, believed it. He rested his hope in God. 
And the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 7, that he spoke to the people of Judah saying this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For, listen to this, for there are more with us than with him. Say, what are you talking about? You just cut off ties with the Philistines and, the, and, and Syria and Israel and you're not relying on Egypt. What do you mean there's more with you? No, you're all alone, buddy. But it's like, it's, it's like the servant who finally had his eyes open and saw the heavenly hosts all around, right? And he says, there's more with us than with him. And with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And then in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5, it says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among him nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept the commandments of the, that the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. And notice it says that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. But of course, he didn't put his hope in Philistia and in Egypt either. Because the next verse says, And he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. And if you remember, that was the furthest southwest of those cities. In other words, as far as you could go into Philistine territory, he went and he conquered and he took over that area from watchtower to fortified city, it says. Hezekiah stood in faith on the promises of God, the purposes of God revealed through prophetic revelation, but he was really trusting in the God behind those purposes, behind those promises. And that, you know, the message really ought to be just that apparent for all of us. You know, when you're in, in the middle of your turmoil, when you're in the midst of personal, spiritual, family turmoil, when, we're, when we face international turmoil, where do we look? What's our hope? Where do Christians take refuge? The answer is not in the arm of the flesh, but in the Lord God. And in times of turmoil like that, I'm, I can almost guarantee you that it will happen for you similar to the way it happened for King, uh, the king of, of Judah, that there will be counselors coming in offering you alternatives to trusting in the Lord your God. And those people will come and they'll offer you counsel. And they'll say, hey, here's, here's a way out. This is the way you should respond. You know? And, and sometimes, honestly, they seem like really good, loving, well-meaning people. But they're not speaking to you the word of God. They're telling you to do what what seems like it'll work. There's a temptation for God's people in those moments to just fall into a sort of unbelieving pragmatism, the same kind of temptation that faced Hezekiah, that faced Ahaz, and he gave into it, right? To put their trust in something else other than the Lord God. Those people will come and they will give you counsel when you're in the middle of a financial crisis, and they'll say, here's how to deal with it. And honestly, it might on a certain level make sense, but it's not the word of God, the will of God for you. Or they'll come to you in the midst of your marital turmoil, and there'll be counsel. I'm telling you, this, this will inevitably happen in a congregation like ours. And, and someone will give you counsel and really it is not the will of God. Someone is in an unwanted pregnancy and they'll get counsel. Someone is dealing with another difficult person and they'll get counsel. The Bible warns us against the counsel of the ungodly, right? It's exactly what Philistia brought to the table. And it's not always obvious, as I said. Sometimes it's very subtle. Satan himself spoke 
as it were, through the words of Peter, Jesus' own disciple. At one point, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So we need to learn to tune our ears to the word of God. Those counsels are appealing because they make sense on a human level, even though they are not the will of God. In those times of turmoil, listen, you're going to be tempted to put your trust and your hope in something besides God to resort to a pragmatic reliance like Hezekiah said, on the arm of flesh, to make alliances with people, with causes that you have no business being a part of. Listen, somebody is going to be here in a time of personal turmoil and there's going to be a strong desire to be married. And you're going to look around and say, you know what, there's no believer... There's no Christian on the horizon that is a potential person that I could marry. And so, this person likes me. They seem like a nice person. Maybe I can win them to Christ. And there's going to be a temptation to make alliances not relying on the Lord God. Listen to me. Your God is sovereign. Your God's in control of all of that, of every kind of difficult situation in which you find yourself. When you think it's impossible, when you look around and see these great, mighty nations all around you about to come in and crush you, hey, believe this, that your God is sovereign over all of it. God is able to take care of His people if they'll stay in Zion, if they'll put their hope and trust in Him. And we're admonished by this, not to judge by what we can see. Not to judge with human eyes, but to rely on the Lord to take refuge in Him. And there are going to be people that in their time of incredible personal turmoil, we've had this, we've had this in this church. People who in a time of incredible personal turmoil were tempted to just leave Zion altogether to walk away from God and His church because it's like they say in their minds and their hearts, there's just no help for me there. I've come to the end of my rope and I'm, I'm just kind of done. I'm going to put my hope somewhere else. I'm going to look for my satisfaction, my help in some other corner, some other city. Listen, all of those who run to the world for help will find that rod just ends up getting turned back upon you. I encourage you to make God your help, to make God your refuge in times of turmoil. He is absolutely sovereign over that impossible situation. Let me tell you, he's the one who ordained that situation, right? Hard as that seems, even if that situation is is fraught with sin and brokenness. God is orchestrating all of that for His own glory and the good of His people. He is restraining it. He's turning it to be used for His own good and righteous purposes. Put your hope in Him. Listen, you have come to heavenly Mount Zion a kingdom that cannot be shaken because the king is on the throne of heaven governing over all of the affairs of men. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, you and I will be tempted in those crisis moments to look somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, let us not be foolish. Let us not be caught up in the snare of the devil. Let us not look to those things that will end up coming back and being a thorn in our own sides, but put our hope and trust in the Lord to rely upon Him, come what may. And I I want to remind you, these people were going to have to go through a lot of really hard things in their future. This this, This promise that God was going to take care of them didn't mean that they would never suffer. But the promise was that those who relied upon the Lord will ultimately find that He was the only refuge worth trusting in. 
Cast your lot completely in with the Lord, friends. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people will find refuge. Oh, afflicted one, find refuge in Zion and in the God of Zion. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today, for the the way that you showed yourself And it has strengthened our faith for what we are facing yet today. Please, Lord, remember remember your children, weak as we are. Give us grace to trust. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.